The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. And a very happy new year to each and every one of you out there in Radio Land. Uh, I just want to wish you a wonderful 2014, and I hope 2013 was just uh, wonderful as well. Uh, we are certainly looking forward to a good and profitable and productive year upcoming. And at this time of year, I think a lot of us just sort of take stock in how the previous year was. And, of course, with the uh, excitement of New Year's resolutions, many of which we never stick to, but nevertheless have the best of intentions in so doing, I think that uh, it's a time of reflection. It's a time of trying to get a sort of a, a feel for where things are going. And we do the same thing in, in this professional world of archaeology that we do. We sort of uh, reconsider what we've been doing professionally and how we're moving along, those of us who are in various stages of our careers, certainly. And uh, another key element of all of this is where the profession is going. And what I did for this particular show, I sort of talked to my assistant, uh, Jessica Vio, who just began working for us about a month ago, replacing um, and and uh, interfacing with a couple of other people that have been working on this program. And I have to certainly give a shout out to those wonderful folks and my interning staff that are involved with the radio program. But Jessica, uh, was asked by by me actually to uh, to impart some pos- possible suggestions for what we might do with a new year's program i mean what would sort of encompass the direction of, of, of a new year, a resolution, a shift towards the future. And she was saying, you know, what might be a reasonably good idea is to talk about, in fact, the archaeology of the future and how we envision it. And do we have any kind of a basis for envisioning what a future archaeology might be about? And I thought that was an absolutely fascinating idea and one that I never would have come across. And uh, I have to say that the younger generation of professionals, as I've indicated on many occasions in this program, I think they're confronting a much more rigorous challenge in terms of the profession, which to a large degree is is sort of interfacing with the challenges that 
all young adults have to confront going forward. I think uh, we all know, and we've read this, that uh, this may be the first generation that actually may not have it had it as good as their parents do. I don't want to impart any negativity to this, certainly, but the fact of the matter is that, that economies can't grow indefinitely and that there are lots of, lots of ups and downs in the economical, economic cycles. And the fact is that uh, there are a lot of elements and a lot of components of the global economy that uh, tend to throw uh, things in, 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 in a certain state of imbalance and disequilibrium. And I think really one of those aspects is, and, and President Obama has pointed this out, as I'll have a lot of other economists on the national economics and uh, international scale, is that the gap between the haves and the have-nots is changing and it's widening. And uh, not that this is any uh, staggering revolution, but it is certainly a cycle that's been longer than, than many have thought, and that the upward trend of prosperity uh, certainly is going to meet and has met with uh, a certain cyclicity of depression, if you will, or recession, let's call it that. And uh, these are just sort of the uh, cycles of the economics of uh, of the 21st century, and uh, certainly here in the United States and across the world, uh, the recession of 2008 was certainly, 2007-2008 was certainly a massive wake-up call to what's going on. In any case, that's sort of a long, rambling way of saying that archaeology has changed as well. Uh, there are certain elements of archaeology of uh, the way we do things. I was going to say the way we do business, and, and, and that's not a, a non sequitur. That is, in fact, where archaeology has gone. I think you will find that in most circles, be they academic, business, cultural heritage, that... Um, the general word on the archaeological street, if you want to use that expression, is that archaeology is moving to be uh, being more of a commercial venture. Uh, pure research is certainly going to continue. We certainly hope it will, and we certainly have every intentions of mounting um, advances in technology, methodology, and in our general uh, knowledge of the field, well, that's certainly going to move forward. But the framework under which all those advances are going to progress will no longer be the traditional uh, research, pure science-funded uh, aspects and, and vehicles that have traditionally powered archaeological advancement in the past century, and I'm talking about the 20th. Um, at this point in time, I think we're uh, reconciled to the fact, and it's it's not necessarily a negative. I think it's it, it, it's a positive be for a number of reasons that I'm going to expound upon going forward. But certainly, uh, the public is going to actually be the driving force behind archaeological advances. The uh, world of sustainability has mandated, for example, that our archaeological explorations can no longer be an open book. In other words, we can't just go to a particular part of the world and just say, okay, here's an interesting part of the, uh, the uh, unexplored landscape. Let's plunk a couple of shovels into the ground and see what we got. You can't do that anymore because the planet is being populated um, in, in areas that hadn't been populated before. There are uh, much graver concerns about sustainability and about maintaining a landscape and uh, an economic world in which resources and exploitation is no longer unbridled and uncontrolled. And as a result of all of that, 
we have to be very careful and very, very deliberate in planning. I think planning is certainly the uh, the name of the game going forward. We have to be very conscious that, this, that the ecology of the world changes and that the human influence on uh, the changes in landscapes and the changes in ecology and the changes in subsistence and sustain, sustainable resources is finite. We cannot abuse the planet. I know that there are those people who say that uh, this is all a bunch of nonsense and that climate change is, is nothing that's uh, really anything that's anyone's worried. Uh, well, you can certainly see in what's happening in the world today that uh, anybody that believes, li- believes that is sort of living in a cave. I mean, climate has become a very major powerful engine that is dictating how we have to manage our world, and that the human effect is becoming almost uncontrollable. I think we know this. And this is sort of a long way of saying that archaeology responds to these things. It responds to sustainability. It responds to market forces and driving engines and, and, and the way the world is structured, uh, irrespective, well, not irrespective of individual nations, but certainly in the, in the broader context of globalization. Globalization is sort of throwing a major curtain over how we do things. I won't say it's homogenizing the way we're doing things, but it's certainly giving us a sort of a common denominator amongst all nations in the world that we have a mutual objective, and that objective is to sustain the world and to make sure that it's survivable. So in that connection, I think that archaeology um, is becoming even a more significant factor because to know that where we're going, we have to know where we've been and where we are. And as a result of that, um, given the fact that we have more limited resources and that, in fact, we have to cooperate on a much grander scales with nations and continents that have heretofore not been extremely close because of reasons of geography. The world is, in fact, shrinking, and now we understand that, in a sense, we have a uniform mission, and our mission is to keep ourselves going. As a result of that, I think that uh, archaeology has become much more international, much more global as well, and we have to retain a focus that allows us to interact with archaeologists from all over the world and to share sort of a common strategy, if you will. Now, there are countries uh, in which archaeological programs are federally funded, and uh, here in the United States, we have always been very jealous of these folks because we certainly don't have a central funding system, as it were. We do, in a sense, of having the National Science Foundation, which as a previous program has indicated, has also come uh, across a certain amount of censure and criticism, and and we've talked about that as a separate issue. But certainly, uh, even the countries in which there were extremely well-endowed federally funded projects, those countries are also starting to tighten the strings. And I think what happens as a result of that is that uh, we have to find new ways of appealing to people. We have to shift our focus. We have to be flexible. We have to understand that archaeology to be meaningful to the profession has to more significantly be meaningful to the greater public. And the public component is critical. The public component will ultimately foot the bill here. And I think the public is really still fascinated by issues such as human evolution, human origins, early civilizations, uh, the emergence of cities, the uh, 
the the impacts of climate on the world as we address this climate issue. And I think that the direct questions on how our world will focus and how our world will in fact survive in a very uh, very changing and in a sense a rough environment, I think those are the kinds of questions that are going to power archaeological research. And again, as I said, to know where we're going, we have to know where we are and where we've been. And archaeology is so intimately tied to these types of questions that it almost, well, it certainly seems to me and to a lot of the people that I do speak to and to, and to whom and with whom I communicate, that uh, one of the questions that arises is, well, you study the past. Do we have examples of how climates have affected the human condition? And uh, the answer is, of course, incredibly yes. And uh, if we start to look at these various uh, elements and these various inputs of the environmental stress and environmental strain resulting in disasters and in resulting in forces that uh, initially and to, to a large degree still are beyond our control, we can start to get a handle on the human impact of uh, on the landscape that will ultimately affect how in control of our environment we will be. I think one of the interesting questions that uh, I'd like to get into is um, a, a geological concept, and that is that it's making making the rounds now in archaeological circles, and that is called the Anthropocene. And uh, when we uh, come back after these words, I will talk a little bit about what the Anthropocene means and how it affects us and, and how we use, have to sort of change our mental templates in looking at archaeological uh, work and archaeological studies going forward. And we will discuss the Anthropocene go, uh, in, in a minute after we take uh, time out for these messages. I'll be right back. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, Health, Environment, and the Power of Water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. 
Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. And another happy new year to my listenership. Uh, looking forward to this uh, year of 2014. And uh, we were discussing archaeology of the future. And uh, before I get into sort of the phantasmagoric elements of what, uh, what future peoples might be unearthing, I think that we're paving the way for kind of understanding what that's about by looking at what a lot of geologists and uh, social scientists, well, specifically archaeologists and anthropologists, are considering the Anthropocene period. Now, as many of you may know, uh, archaeology and geology uh, is divided into uh, time frames um, that are linked to uh, various events and various cycles in the history of the Earth and the development of the Earth. And uh, traditionally, archaeologists have concentrated in what's, uh, what's known as the Quaternary Period, which includes uh, two phases, with, uh, which includes the Pleistocene, which is typically associated with the periods of the uh, emergence of the human condition, and of course this is a very subtle change, I mean, uh, as we know more about evolution and as we know more about the morphological changes in how humans form and develop, our time frames do change, but there is a certain adjustment that can be made, but very classically and uh, allowing for, for a certain amount of slipping and sliding and adjusting. The quaternary really refers to the Pleistocene period um, when uh, humans basically assumed a modern form, when bipedal evolution sort of took hold, uh, when that means essentially when, uh, when humans emerged and started to walk on two feet. And the Holocene, which is essentially the past 10 to 12,000 years, which essentially refers to the modern period. I mean, there are, we can get into all sorts of details about this, but, uh, I've discussed this in various, uh, in various previous pro, in, in previous programs. But by and large, the last 10,000 years would be the equivalent of the new stone age, the period in which, um, humans were starting to manufacture implements on a fairly sophisticated scale and they were starting to live in groups that were recognizable that gave rise to village life and early civilizations whereas the previous period of the Pleistocene was basically engaged in the most fundamental changes in both human biology 
and the earliest use of tools and culture. If we consider that as a uh, as a time for, as a baseline for understanding his, the chronology and the developments of the human condition, then what you can what people are starting to talk about right now is uh, let's call it a a very critical threshold in the human condition such that for example if again we talk about the quaternary again the pleistocene and the holocene then you're talking about periods in which the human condition emerged that's where that would be the pleistocene which this is the vast amount of time say between two and a half two million years and the last ten thousand years and the holocene which would be the last ten to twelve thousand years that uh, basically relate to the period of human dispersals and human organization that leads to the types of political economic and social systems that we're witnessing today so that village life um, uh, domestication those are products of the whole Holocene, by and large, whereas the emergence of humans, uh, humans as as a, uh, two-legged walking people, um, or people per se, and the use of stone tools, those were the developments and critical developments that characterized the large bulk, the bulk of the past two and a half million years. Whereas uh, everything sort of accelerated exponentially in the past ten thousand, and we go from. Um, domestication into social complexity, uh, early civilizations, and then who we are today. But the critical element of all of this is that what has happened here is that the environment or the landscape or the geology or the environments of the past were by and, far, by and large the elements that had a tremendous amount to do with how humans spaced themselves across the landscapes and how humans adjusted to the various stresses and strains of climate and environment and, and uh, resources that were available to them. So that during the, the, the 95% of the quaternary, uh, humans were really responding to changes in climate and environments across which they dispersed. And they were essentially hunter and gathering groups. I mean, there's a lot of argument and there's I mean, there's 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 an entire vast literature that uh, deals with the ups and downs and the ins and outs of these developments. But by and large, if you want to sort of break it down into into a compartment that most people can understand, it's essentially saying that environment had a lot to do with how we uh, situated ourselves across the landscape and how we organized ourselves and and what developments essentially occurred. Going into the Holocene, of course, we started to understand that um, living in groups had a tremendous amount uh, of, of uh, positive energy. There was a lot of potential here so that uh, we started to organize ourselves in the ways that resulted in where we are at today. But again, the most important thing here is that by and large, we're, our developments are are dictated, if not, well, let's uh, conditioned largely, let's call it that way, not dictated, but uh, conditioned largely by environmental conditions. And so when civilization emerges 
on the banks of major rivers that are very productive and flood in cycles and lend themselves to uh, agriculture, that has a tremendous amount to do with where humans settle and uh, it all takes off from there. So again, the cycles of the rivers, the cycles of the climates, the pulses in the glacial uh, in, in the in the glacial advances, all of these have a tremendous effect on what we call human geography or the placement of of human beings across what we know as as, as planet Earth. And again, uh, one of the interesting things about archaeology is we still haven't discovered all of this, and we certainly don't know all the dynamics of it. And there are probably many parts of the world in which even um, some civilizations or, or emerging civilizations have not yet been discovered. We don't know this as a fact, but we're certainly learning more and more. And the puzzle, if, if nothing else, is, is starting to sort itself and become much richer now. Getting into the period where we are right now, where in fact what is happening is that the human impact on the landscape and on the environment is now becoming a major force, whereas before it was the other way around. Environment, and again, we're talking in, in simple terms and in basic terms, but just to get sort of a very generic pattern of what's going on here. We are starting to see, and, and, and I guess if we look at it, and a lot of scholars have done this, this really sort of started in the Industrial Revolution. Um, we are talking mainly, of course, of Europe, where these types of events uh, occurred on a very, very large scale. And many other parts of the world, hunting and gathering persisted, and uh, they certainly weren't impacted until the Euro-Americans came in and sort of essentially uh, cast uh, cast their their nets ex- especially wide and very powerfully, and imposed in, this, in, a, in the grandest sense their will on hunter and gather hunter and gathering groups that would have probably have sustained themselves for longer periods of time had the Euro Americans not. Um, come and uh, essentially taken over their lands. But that's another story for another time. By and large, what we're seeing, though, is right now the world is shrinking and the Western influence is so dominant and so all-encompassing that it has affected what's going on. And one of the um, impacts that I think is so so critical here is now our, the environment is no longer operating as we would say if we still had a traditional vision of what used to be called mother nature you can't fool mother nature well you know what right now we're starting to fool mother nature it was an old commercial that 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 was pretty dominant when i was in my teens and 20s mother nature is now i won't say being tamed but mother nature is now being affected by human human activity on a very significant scale and that's something that had not been recognized before. Uh, one can argue, I think, reasonably well, that uh, one of the pivotal changes here was the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century in Europe, where all of a sudden mass production, uh, mass pollution started to take over uh, the production of uh, consumer goods on a grand scale. The, it started in the cities. Um, there was pollution on a variety of different scales that actually affected where people started to live. And this this occurred, I think, by and large in the 19th century when it was occurring simultaneously in many places. 
and it was starting to affect the movements of re- local and then regional populations. Where I work in New York City a lot, um, we're seeing that uh, as as soon as Manhattan Island started to get settled, um, uh, industries emerged, and these are uh, steel industries or. or uh, what eventually became Rust Belt Industries, these were the forerunners, but they still created environmental problems that causes diseases to spread. And, and of course, we all know that the colonization of the New World was associated with Europeans bringing their panoply of diseases with them and essentially wiping out the Native Americans in, in North and South America. And uh, these these were obviously events that were critical. And keep in mind, all these things have happened in the past 500 years. Um, it happened in other parts of the world, very certainly. Uh, if you track the movement of the Europeans and and and, and sort of the accoutrements or or the industries that they dragged along with them, and they imposed those types of lifestyles or those types of sustainability and resource exploitation strategies on other parts of the world, what we're seeing is that the scale of these developments is has gotten much greater. And as a result of that, what we're seeing is that all of a sudden local environments are being affected. That's how it originally started. And then regional environments started to, to be affected. And uh, the next scale is is you just project it, and as technology advances, if you will, and as the scope of what the human the human condition has allowed us to expand onto has 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 grown and spread, well, it's not difficult to understand that as these uh, f- uh, forces act on the environment, the environment is eventually going to be drained, if you will, and it's going to be certainly, if you will domesticated to a certain degree until you get to a point where it can't be domesticated anymore and then those natural forces are essentially being depleted of what they can do uh, and we will discuss what that means in a minute and we'll get back into this Anthropocene question right after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Living your best life isn't just about fitness and health. It's also about living a better life emotionally and creating balance. You know where you want to be, but what steps do you take to get there? Listen to Good Health for a Great Life with host Rick Barnabo. We'll bring you guest experts and tools to help you connect the dots from who and where you are to who and where you want to be. It's time to take responsibility for your life. Listen every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkhart and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkhart every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with a, our New Year's edition of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And I have been talking about uh, one of uh, the most critical elements, I think, certainly, in, in how we're going to look at archaeology going forward. And that, of course, is the state of the world. And, and uh, the key element that I'm trying to bring forth here is that at this point in the human condition, if we look at it sort of as... As a, as a gradational development or a series of, of uh, progressive developments with a lot of stops and starts and peaks and valleys, etc. And, and, and a net movement is to essentially humans having affected the natural environment or Mother Nature, if you will, if you want to use it, call it in that, that sense. We are now getting to the point where uh, Mother Nature is being, as they say, impacted by humans um, essentially having taken control of their environment to a point where it's very possible that they can't regulate it anymore, that we won't be able to regulate what's going on anymore. And, and climatologists and geologists and folks who are involved in marine biology and in terrestrial biology as well are starting to say that uh, depletion of the ozone layer and those types of circumstances are not necessarily reversible and that if we keep doing these types of um, these types of activities and if we continue to pollute the uh, the environment and to to load our 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 landscapes with hydrocarbons um, it will eventually be impossible to gain a handle on it and if we keep um, keep accelerating global temperatures uh, by by a, a few degrees every every 100 or 200 years it will be impossible to get control over this now one of the things that i think we need to point out is that during the holocene which is where we are now it's called an interglacial there is a natural warming to the landscape that's unquestionably true and i'm surprised that that the anti climate change folks haven't uh, climbed on this bandwagon many have not i don't think 
it's, it sort of uh, amazes me because this is one of their logical uh, foot footholds to grab. But the fact of the matter is that while you're in a warming interval and you accelerate the rates of warming to a degree that is so monumental, I mean, it's a, to the point where it's a, exponentially greater than any warming interval that we've witnessed so far. And, and we can determine that by a variety of different types of scientific strategies and, and methodologies, many of which are related to ocean coring. But nevertheless, we are seeing that we can no longer temper and control these things. And if that, in fact, keeps going, we are getting into what, as I said uh, about a half hour ago, we're going into the Anthropocene period, where what we do will factor will will largely affect the natural environment to the degree that we have to really worry about whether or not we can regain control over it. Now, if that's the case, and hopefully greater minds will enable us to develop technologies that will allow us to get a certain measure of control over that, um, I hope so. Certainly, we're doing things right now that had been inconceivable a long time ago, and we were worried about things like, for example, the fresh water supply, and now it's starting to look as if, potentially at least, it may be possible, at least on certain scales, to, uh, to distill fresh water from the sea. Uh, it, it's possible to do that. Whether or not we're going to be able to do this, I'm not sure. But uh, the, 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 the potential is there. We certainly have to marshal our resources and uh, get central control over these resources so that this kind of planning will be done. And I'm hopeful that we can do this. But we will be able to do this, and we will be able possibly to generate fresh water. But just to get to the point where we have to generate fresh water is, is a sort of a real crisis. And um, so these types of issues have um, are just starting to, to crop up in, in droves. And I think that's what's giving way to a, a very sort of a, a very sound, I think, uh, theoretical uh, module, which is called the Anthropocene, where right now it's in our power to, or it has to be in our power, let's put it this way, if we want to be sort of fatalistic, it has to be in our power to regulate the environment because we have caused so much damage at this point that we really have to reel it in. And uh, if we have the technology to do it and if we have the foresight and uh, central planning uh, to be able to do these things, we'll be able to move ahead, I hope. I mean, whether or not we've gotten to the point of no return, I don't know. I hope not to be that fatalistic, but we can do these things I'm hopeful. And in any case, that would bring us to what we're now starting to call um, in the literature the Anthropocene period. So, again, to summarize, up until now, by and large, uh, environment has dictated many of the key developments in the human condition. Um, these conditions have cha started to change dramatically in the uh, in the 18th century. Um, actually, 500 years ago, it's really the Euro, Euro Americans who had the tools and the technology to impact landscapes and environments with 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 uh, a massive amount of force and a certain amount of deterministic potential. But that started 500 years ago. It really started to accelerate during the Industrial Revolution, and finally in the 20th. 20th century and in the early 21st century, it's gone a little bit haywire. Um, I will just, as a sidebar, note that uh, people uh, at this time of year, um, 
as it invariably occurs when they're seeing these massive, massive episodes of, of unconscionable cold as we're experiencing right now in the northeast of the United States and in the Midwest. And uh, certainly that has been experienced in Europe over the past decade with uh, Europeans getting snow in, in places that had never been seen before. The same thing in the Middle East and, and, the, and the tsunamis over in, in the Far East. Those types of events are actually signaling uh, what people are saying. Well, there's no global warming, certainly in North America, because we're getting this massive cold. Well, yeah, that is episodic, but it relates to the major picture, which is climatic change. And the fact of the matter is that the greatest impacts of climate change are not going to be felt in the temperate environments, which are um, at, at the higher uh, at the higher latitudes and in the northern hemisphere, in the lower latitudes, in the in the southern hemisphere, they're going to be felt in the equatorial areas where um, uh, that type of hydrocarbon poisoning occurs in in massive quantities, and flooding is going to be absolutely out of control because of of uh, because of the snowfalls and because uh, of the meltwater activity that's occurring in that wake. That's going to actually translate into equatorial areas where uh, uh, poorer populations live, where third world countries are, and where the control over the landscape is is has no infrastructure whatsoever. And that's where the catastrophe are going to occur. And so please, let's not talk about, oh, it can't be climatic change because look how cold it is in New York or look how cold it is in, in Northern Europe or how much snowfall they're getting in the Alps. That's not relevant to anything. It's relevant to the fact that there is a complete destabilization of climatic cycles. The cyclone systems are completely changing. The, dis uh, the displacement of the isotherms is critical. And it's really the displacements that has, have us worried. And the fact that it's going to wreak the greatest amount of havoc in the areas that really can't suffer any more damage. But that being what it is, uh, let's take a step back and, and, and let's hopefully upgrade a little bit of our, uh, of our sensory uh, appreciation of what archaeology, in fact, does. And let's get into what archaeology is going to look like. Well, one of the things that we're going to see in archaeology is certainly, as I talked about in the age of sustainability, we are not going to be able to excavate where we feel like excavating anymore. The, the populations are just too big, and we're not going to be able to simply go into places where we really need to know a lot of information. And I'm talking specifically about urban areas and uh, talk about their evolution. And we simply cannot throw a bunch of people into, uh, say, downtown Chicago or downtown Paris, or, uh, or Sydney, or any major centers, Cape Town, and uh, just willy-nilly excavate. We can't do that anymore because the infrastructures of the cities are just so significant. And we need to learn a little bit about the urban, the urban lifeways. And, and the way to do that, I think, is uh, that's one of our positive elements, I think, is, is through uh, advanced technologies. Um, Remote sensing has become a major component of archaeology at this point, and non-invasive archaeological testing and survey are going to become the norm at this point. Um, we are certainly doing this in, in our area in New York City. Uh, we are starting to, in fact, field teams that are high-tech skilled people that are very well-versed in uh, geographic information systems in remote sensing technologies, satellite imagery, um, 
LIDAR testing, a variety of, t of, of, of uh, technological and methodological advances that have allowed us to recover information that used to be unearthed over the course of many years by large teams of professionals and in many cases non-professionals, just manpower, huge labor um, labor teams uh, that, that were just sort of thrown at a project and you would unearth volumes of dirt and uh, try to assemble the results that you've uncovered. And right now that's changing. And uh, again, we're going to be working in areas because of the regulatory environment where development is being dictated by planning agencies. And there's nothing really wrong with that at all. I think that uh, we sort of certainly have to sort of streamline how we go ahead and do our excavations, how we approach problems. Let's get as much information without putting shovels in the ground as we can so that once we do put shovels or equipment into the ground, we'll know what we're doing and we won't be spinning our wheels and uh, spending and wasting ever-dwindling amounts of resources. And that, of course, gets us back to the question of public outreach and how we're going to get our funding and we will get back and discuss that issue uh, after we take this break. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have you been struggling to rediscover your sexual life? How do relationships really work? Are there some topics that should be off the table? Listen for Love, Sex, and Communication with host Reverend Dr. Stuart Block. Dr. Block has spent decades helping adults to have more pleasure, satisfaction, and higher levels of communication. It can mean more pleasurable, caring relationships. Love, Sex, and Communication can be heard live every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Can you 
And we're back with our final segment on the fu- archaeology of the future segment uh, presentation, uh, which is our New Year's program. And uh, we've talked about a lot of different elements of uh, the human condition, how it's evolved, and we've talked greatly about uh, the probability and I, I think it's sort of a reality at this point that what we're witnessing right now in, in, in the history of the world is that um, we have to really sort of do our best to regulate environmental pollution and, and environmental degradation because whereas earlier on in, in the human career um, environment sort of dictated uh, where people lived and settled and how they evolved, uh, evolved and then lived and settled um, right now now, um, environment is being affected by human activity to the degree that we have to be very careful with what's going on in the in in, in the nat- natural world, and and we really sort of, in a sense, have to back up back off and we have discussed that but what's the archaeology going to look like that's an interesting question I think one of the uh, very progressive ideas that's been advanced in archaeology over the past 30 or 40 years is do not dig it all up and what that means is irrespective of the type of site that you're looking at whether it's a, an early hominid site or an early people site if you will or whether or not it's a complex village um, one of the uh, one of the elements that 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 has governed archaeological excavation is is the entire strategy of sampling, and sampling essentially uh, takes archaeology into into uh, a mathematical domain, and it says effectively that when you sample, you will get a representative or a critical element of the puzzle, and why one of the reasons you do that is because um, to excavate an entire site uh, involves a tremendous amount of money first, and second of all. As you get to a certain point, uh, you will see a certain amount of repetitiveness in what you're recovering from the archaeological excavation, and do you really need to get it? And finally, the third, and I think one of the most uh, promising and, and, and uh, prophetic elements of, of uh, the people who started fashioning and, and sort of uh, specializing in this entire sampling uh, perspective on archaeology is leave something for future archaeologists. And by doing that, one of the things that uh, I think we've envisioned, and I hope we continue to envision it, is that the methods that will be available to us and the degree to which we will be able to extract and interpret uh, the residue of the past will be so much more advanced as technology sort of leap uh, sort of advances in leaps and bounds over the uh, upcoming years i mean we now have instrumentation that dwarfs anything that i saw when i was a graduate student i mean we have laser transits we have measuring devices mapping systems that are so sophisticated that they can detect uh, a piece of scrap metal on the ground from space and uh, that type of technology uh, and the potential of that type of technology is leading scientists and archaeologists to understand that really let's just recover a sample of a site or a sample of a, a monument uh, 
or that's that's buried or or just do what what's necessary to achieve a certain amount of documentation that we can interpret because in the years going forward we're going to be able to generate so much more now of course there is there's an ongoing battle here uh, as as many of you can envision because archaeology as i said before is dictated by development and uh if we get an overly ambitious developer that knocks out the site completely then then we have lost. So we have to really create sort of a very subtle and, and critical equilibrium between the forces of development and the forces of knowledge in, in, in a sense. And, and these things never have, don't, don't necessarily have to clash. And I think that one of the major advances and one of the major benefits of the past 50 years is that the conservation mentality has really taken a hold, a foothold in many, many developing sectors in that extends from uh, from private developers who are uh, building buildings and uh, constructing industrial parks all the way to the oil and gas industry which certainly has gotten a bad rap in in, in recent times but uh, the fact of the matter remains and, and we'll be doing a series of shows on this that the oil and gas industry basically funnels and funds most of the archaeological research certainly in North America and in many other parts of the world and there is a consciousness and an awareness on the part of industry people that uh, heritage is critical and that heritage and preservation do not have to necessarily knock heads. They have to be balanced. And, uh, of course, money is, is, is critical here. But I, I would say that our experiences over the past 20 years, when, uh, probably even a little more than that, is that uh, to strike a balance is worth certainly every piece of negotiating potential that you have. And we're starting to see that the, this industry, especially oil and gas, is, is, uh, is starting to get the picture, to get the message. And I think they've done a tremendous amount in order to balance the developing interests. Um, we can get into this whole question of fracking, um, which I'm not going to talk about today, certainly, but it's going to be uh, an item that we will be talking about in the near future. But certainly the conflation of these joint interests is something that we have to work on, and it will be the private sector that will be funding a tremendous amount of this work. Offshore drilling, uh, whether or not we're for it or against it, um, some, of these, uh, some of these developments, for better or worse, will be happening. And the question is how much of an impact and how much influence do uh, conservation interests, uh, are conservation interests going to be able to play as these developing concerns move forward? And I think we can do this. And I think, it's, it's, uh, I think everybody knows at this point that the planet is at risk and, and, and it would be folly for anyone to think that, uh, that the developers are exclusively rapacious and they're not. I think uh, they have to breathe the air too. So um, again, we have to talk about striking a, a dynamic equilibrium or stasis, if you will, to, uh, to allow um, these, these interests to work together and to move this forward. So getting back to what the archaeology will look like, it's hard to say because the archaeology is going to be very different, done in a very, very different fashion. Uh, I know that now urban archaeology is moved into a, a direction that is, is very, very high tech. I mean, you simply cannot dig up uh, huge swaths or blocks of land in, in places like New York City, but you can put probes in there. And we have sophisticated maps and oral history 
histories and uh, a tremendous amount of background information. We know the geology. We know what archaeological sediments and dirt looks like so that we can start to piece these things together with a very limited sample, as I said before, of the actual Earth. Because we've seen this earth before. We've seen these tiny cores that go into the ground. We know what they mean. And we know what, the, we know what soils look like. We know what, what deposits look like and where they come from. From a little core that's about an inch and a half in diameter, we can tell a tremendous amount of information. So I think what's going to happen is all of this, uh, this technology and our interpretive potential is going to get us to the point where we do archaeology smarter and not necessarily more. So, uh, again, it, it, it becomes a, an inductive, a deductive tool that will enable us to, uh, to, let's just say, interpret a tremendous amount more than we used to per cubic meter of soil, if you will. And, and that is really where we have to put the emphasis. We have to, we have to work smarter. And more significantly than that, we have to convince the greater population that knowing about the past is the key to understanding how to manage the future. And I think those developments are starting to show signs of, of, of positive feedback. And I think we're all in this together. We have to convince a lot of people still that, that we are at a pivotal point in, in, in human ecology and that we have to balance the interests of uh, unbridled development with preservation and I'm hopeful about it. I think that going forward we're starting to learn much more about this and I think um, it's, it's, it's really uh, going to eventually sort itself out in a positive way. I certainly see that the archaeology that I'm doing today is much, much smarter and much more efficient and much more uh, much less, shall we say, conflicting and much less conf confrontational with the developing community than it used to be. And on that note, I want to uh, be very, very positive about this. I think it's going to, to uh, require a certain amount, a tremendous amount of creativity and goodwill between forces that used to be confrontational and now realize that the planet is ours collectively, and we have to work together to maintain it, and archaeology can play a very significant role in the direction and ultimate formulation of where we're going. So on that note, uh, I want to say good evening to everybody, and we will meet up with you again next time, and remember that the past is a predictor and a molder of the future, and let's understand it before we take each other down. Thank you so much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.